Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics, where we have important conversations regarding philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Uh, today I'm joined by a couple really special guests, pretty awesome people. Uh, we're going to be debating the historicity of the resurrection. On one side, we're going to have Dr. Randall Rouser. In case you don't know who he is, uh, he's a Christian, he's a professor of systematic and an analytic theology, and he's an author of many books, including his newest book, uh, Conversations with My Inner Atheist. So, Lots of good stuff to check out from Dr. Rouser. Um, and then on the other end, we got John Gleason, the Godless Engineer. He runs the YouTube channel, Godless Engineer. Really cool dude. Really cool video thumbnails, I have to say. And just an all-around pretty cool guy. I've, I've really enjoyed interacting with John. So thank you guys both for joining. Welcome. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, too. I'm getting a lot of exercise in now that I'm teleworking. So, yeah. <laughs> it's stuff, man. I'm ready to see that six pack of yours, John, whatever the time comes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in a few years because it's going to take a little bit to wear down this summer. <laughs> so today we're going to be debating the historicity of the resurrection. Uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to turn over to Randall for an opening statement. He's going to just kind of lay out his argument. And then we're going to go to open dialogue for about an hour. And then we'll do about 15-ish minutes of Q&A at the end. Um, but with that, it's your, the floor is yours, Randall, whenever you're ready, just kind of give your outline. Yeah, so thanks uh, for having me, Zach. So uh, since we're kind of informal here, can I just begin with uh, asking John a question just to know where you're at on this? Like, do you think that the idea of, of a resurrection is viable in principle as a historical hypothesis? Um, I, I don't, I, I think that I think it could be possible, uh, although I really think that it would it would be it would be really really difficult in order to prove it, considering the context that we're talking. Okay, so but in principle, it is because like some people are a priori closed to the idea of a miracle as as being a historic a legitimate historical explanation, but that's not your view. You believe the miracles can be. I, I don't. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't consider miracles to be able to be proven in history, uh, mainly because, uh, like, like at least for me, I, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you define miracles differently, but I, I would think that a miracle would require some kind of suspension of the natural order of reality, and I think that that kind of thing would be really difficult to prove, especially in ancient history. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get on a tangent, but I, I do think it's important as, as a sort of prior discussion point. So it's like for me, I would take a classic definition of miracle as a sign of divine action. So that doesn't necessarily involve, uh, as Thomas Aquinas would have said, the, the absence of a secondary cause and just the attribution of a divine primary cause to the event. All it would require is to say, hey, the best way to explain this event is that God was acting in history. Now, he could have been acting through extraordinary, unknown, heretofore unknown natural processes, but nonetheless, he was acting. So without getting into some of the abstract metaphysics of it, but you're okay with him in principle saying, yeah, it's, it's a viable hypothesis. So I, I think it's important at the outset because what I often run into when I talk with skeptics of the resurrection is that when you really get down to it, they are closed a priori or, or in principle to miracle claims or to the idea that God could have raised Jesus from the dead. And so it's good to know that at the outset with when I'm talking with somebody where they are on that question. Okay. 
Okay, so what we can leave it there, but uh, and so other people know as well. It's it's an important thing to be thinking about. All right, so um, I want to to look at it from the perspective of a historian, and I, I would say historians, there's a sense where you never prove anything, right? That it's always degrees of probability when we're talking about the past. Certainly, when we're talking about the past two thousand years ago from the perspective of history, it's not a matter of proof, but it is a matter of what is the best explanation for the evidence that we have available to us. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna maybe ramble a little bit, feel free to jump in at any point if you'd like, uh, but I just wanna begin by talking about, so this Christian movement begins in the 30s of the first century, and we have to explain where it comes from, from a historical perspective. Uh, so if we want to think about the Christian movement, by the time of Constantine, three centuries later, Christianity has pretty much, uh, well, it hasn't become yet the dominant view, but certainly it's become the favored religious perspective of Constantine. Perhaps uh, there's a couple million Christians, certainly by the early 300s. So it's an extraordinary unparalleled growth, particularly because it doesn't come through military might. So how do we understand this movement? And the first thing we have to appreciate is that if you go back to the 30s, we can trace to that time a set of extraordinary beliefs that seemingly arise out of nowhere. And we have to explain where those beliefs come from. So if I want to look at the Christian movement as a sort of like an impact crater, and we want to go, first of all, to the outer perimeter of that crater from a historical perspective, the outer perimeter would include five extraordinary conceptual developments that trace back to the 30s. First one is this idea of atonement. Uh, so of course, Jews had a concept of atonement tied to temple sacrifice and to the Day of Atonement. But beginning in the 30s, this movement originally of Jews, uh, and then eventually including Gentiles as well, came to understand atonement as linked fundamentally to this person, Jesus, to his life and particularly his death. So we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, and there, Paul seems to be, by quoting this creed that was circulating in the church, referencing this new understanding of the Isaiah 53 suffering servant passage, which had previously typically been applied to Israel, but now is applied to this human being, Jesus. So, so that's a pretty extraordinary move. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 as well, Paul quotes uh, something that he had received, a teaching that Jesus has fulfilled the Passover. And so he quotes uh, how we are to gather together and to celebrate what now becomes a Christian Eucharistic communion by celebrating the body and blood of Jesus. So now Passover is reinterpreted as well. Another example, Galatians 3.13 and Galatians, a letter dating to about the year 49 or 50, Paul uh, takes uh, what was originally a shame that Jesus died on the cross, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 21 that um, curses everyone who dies on a tree, but he says, Christ became the curse for us in Galatians 3.13. And so we have this first fact that the Christians have this revolutionized understanding of atonement. We have to explain where that comes from. Second thing we have to explain is a complete change in their understanding of Messiah. Prior to that point, Messiah was fundamentally linked to a military conqueror that would liberate the Jewish people from the Romans. But the Christians adopt this new understanding of Messiah as somebody who's linked to crucifixion. Now, now, there's this popular meme that I've seen from atheists online. It has a picture of Thor holding a hammer, and it says, uh, your God died on a cross, my God has a hammer, any questions? And of course, that's meant to be a kind of cheeky and get under the skin of, of Christians. 
but it actually is a good way of illustrating how counterintuitive this Christian uh, understanding of Messiah was. The Messiah is no longer linked with the power of the hammer, but with a person who submits willingly to death. And not just any death, but the most shameful death known in the ancient world, which is crucifixion. So again, Deuteronomy 21, 23 was interpreted by Christians uh, in accord with the Roman practice of crucifixion. Jesus was cursed because he had died on a tree, and yet they revolutionized their understanding of Messiah in light of him. So that's the second revolution. So change in atonement, change in understanding of Messiah. Third, change in their understanding of resurrection. The view of resurrection at the time was of an event at the end of history. Christians suddenly began preaching in the 30s that resurrection had occurred in the middle of history with Jesus. Uh, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 describes Jesus as the first fruits of this future resurrection that we anticipate. Now to get our heads around how extraordinary that is, imagine that there's a farmer and he's got, let's say a field of, of peaches, but it's the middle of winter and everything's frozen. And his wife comes in with a basket and says, I've got a basket of peaches from the crop that's gonna come this next summer. That doesn't make any sense. That's what was being proposed with the idea of one resurrection happening in the middle of history. So that's the third huge revolution. The fourth one is to understand Jesus as divine. Uh, now this we see Paul again in 1 Corinthians, which I'm trying to rely on 1 Corinthians as, as one of my few texts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul takes the Jewish Shema, which was the famous confession of Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And he now applies it to Jesus. He says, for us, there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So you have this, as Paul describes himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee zealous for the Lord, who is now taking Jesus and inserting him into the Jewish confession of God. And we can't miss what he's doing here because he takes the word Lord and applies it to Jesus. What he's doing there is taking the Greek word kurios, which in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was standardly used to refer to God, and he now applies it to Jesus. So he's giving, he's expanding the very Jewish concept of God. Fifth revolution is to shift from worshiping God in community together on Sabbath to doing it on the first day of the week. Uh, we have that implied in Acts 27 and also in 1 Corinthians 16.2. It was the clear established practice of the early church. So those are five revolutions. We have to explain uh, that outer perimeter of the impact creator. What brought about these changes in this movement and gave rise to this new movement? That brings us into the inner portions of the creator. Uh, and there we just go to 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to move quicker now because I don't want to ramble on for too long. But I'll just say 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, I'll focus on that. Uh, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Kephas, or that is Peter, and then to the 12. And after he adds that he also appeared to James and to himself and 500 others. But the original form is, is of the creed is, is the portion I just read. Now we can date that to within months, if not a couple years of the death of Jesus by using Galatians 1. And we can talk about that later if you like. But what that means is that already within the 30s, within a couple months to a few years of the death of Jesus, they are proclaiming these core confessions that Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised and that he was seen by these individuals. They're proclaiming it in Jerusalem 
and they're using formal rabbinic language that what I received, I passed on to you, which is a way of saying, we're not playing the telephone game here, that we all change it a little bit every time it gets passed on, but rather we ensure the faithful passing on of rabbinic tradition. And what that creed contains is both statement that the early apostles, people like Peter, believed they had seen Jesus alive, that skeptics like Paul and James came to believe that they had seen Jesus alive. Um, and so this is something that even atheist New Testament scholars like Gerrit Ludemann would concede, that they in fact did believe they saw Jesus. And we also have by implication an empty tomb. We can also talk more about that. Suffice it to say, just to draw all that together, in the 30s, we can explain where this revolution, this conceptual revolution, these five lines that I outlined come from. They come from the belief that these individuals thought they had seen Jesus raised from the dead uh, and that the tomb by implication was empty. And the best explanation, I think, for those experiences, for the change, like in the mindset of someone like Paul, who was the biggest persecutor of the early church and yet came to be its leading evangelist and disciple, is to say, yeah, that indeed they did they did see Jesus raised from the dead. So that's a quick introduction. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Randall, for that. Um, now you, uh, I mean, you laid out a, a lot of lines there, but what what I really feel like this kind of relies heavily on is the idea that just because they believed something, that means that it happened in history. Is that would would that be an accurate description of of the argument that you laid out? Like not not all of your arguments, but like yeah. something that's kind of at the core of it. No, the idea. I mean, I, I skipped over that part because I didn't want to ramble on. But but they did come to believe it, and and that's pretty clear. So then the next question is, what are the explanations? And sort of we can look at psychological explanations. You could try the grief hallucination hypothesis. You can look at the possibility that they didn't actually believe it, that they were faking, that it was a conspiracy. You can look at the hypothesis that they went to the wrong tomb. I'm going to argue that if you want to follow any of those lines, that all of those are not as adequate an explanation as the one I proposed. That Jesus resurrected from the, actually resurrected from the dead. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Did Paul know anybody that knew Jesus prior to his death? We don't know that. There's a good possibility he did because he likely, while he was from Tarsus, he likely grew up and spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3. And so that's a good indicator that he did not consider himself to be a Hellenistic Hebrew, but rather a Hebraic Hebrew. And that was one that he could claim then as a badge of honor. So it's likely that he would have crossed paths with several of them. Yeah, but wouldn't you agree that's just speculation? and not really based in evidence? Uh, well, I gave a reasoned argument just now for why we can expect that he would have crossed paths with them. What we do know for sure is that he would have met with, that he met with James and Peter, which is what he says quite explicitly in Galatians chapter 118. Uh, and that would have been about the year between 35 and 37, depending on how you would date it. And so for my claim would be that that would be really the latest that he would have got that creedal teaching that he cites in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, I, you know, I really should have started out with this, that um, one of the points of agreement that I have with you is that uh, I agree that the Pauline Creed dates to the early 30s. But the problem that I have with with the statement um, about about that particular point 
is that you seem to think that just because the belief or the creed developed at that time, that inherently means that Jesus had just died uh, or something like that. Uh, when in reality, it doesn't, it doesn't indicate when it happened. It just indicates that it happened in the early 30s. Okay. And so what's your... Well, my, my point, my point kind of goes back to uh, where we started off with, and that's um, whether or not just because somebody believes something, does that mean that that something actually happened or really exists? Like just uh, a comparative example would be um, Muhammad of, of uh, the Islamic religion. Uh, he believed that he was visited by an angel that gave him, you know, uh, his his testament or his um, holy book or whatnot, whatnot um, spoke to him, uh, gave him teachings. Does that mean that Muhammad was really visited by an angel? No, of course not. And nor, as okay. I said, have I proposed such reasoning. What I'm proposing is inference of the best explanation type reasoning. So, I mean, if you have a better explanation for the data points I laid out, then I'd love to hear it. Well, yeah. Okay. So um, now you laid out a lot. I didn't actually get a chance to write down all of them. So maybe uh, I could start with one and, and maybe we can go from there. No. Uh, you you kind of acted like the idea of atonement. Uh, it had like, like it couldn't have just naturally developed from Judaism because as we know in Isaiah 53 uh, or Isaiah in general, um, uh, such a such an atoning sacrifice was actually expected because of that section. So, what prevents uh, you know the vast landscape of Jewish ideas in the early first century and late um, first century BCE? Um, what what prevents that from just naturally like uh, you know changing and 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 coming about just from Jewish beliefs that were already cemented in the community. I'm not clear on what you're claiming from Isaiah, what belief you're claiming. What I said, so for example, Isaiah 53, uh, the suffering servant was that was always applied to, standardly applied to Israel. It wasn't applied to an atoning messianic figure until Jesus came along. That's a novel innovation. Well, no, not exactly, um, because Paul, uh, he he regularly cites the scriptures as where he gets his knowledge from. So, I mean, the scriptures would have been like the Septuagint, and he obviously pulled a lot of information from like Isaiah. The Gospels, they also pull a lot of their information about what happens to Jesus from Isaiah as well as other portions of the Old Testament. So uh, it just kind of seems to me like the more parsimonious explanation is just that this idea of an atoning sacrifice for sins uh, and, and such would have just naturally developed in the Jewish landscape. So the, your claim is that the idea that a single individual would fulfill the requirements and expectations of temple sacrifice and the Day of Atonement, that there was this expectation already preexistent. Um, where is the evidence for that? Well, I, I mean, like in in Isaiah and in like the 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 whole old old testament i mean in in i like in the suffering servant part while the writers of isaiah may have thought uh, or, or may have been meaning israel it's plainly obvious that 
definitely by the time uh, Paul comes around, they're already interpreting that particular section as being prophetic about Jesus. And since we don't have any kind of connection prior to Paul, the only kind of evidence we have about this Christ figure is from Paul. And he only cites scriptures as his information source. Well, scriptures and visions or hallucinations. Yeah, so I'm, 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 I don't want to get on, on a tangent too long in the atonement in particular, but I'm still not clear where you are saying that, that there was a natural development, that this was not a conceptual revolution that was being brought about by the early Christians worshiping Jesus. We could go to this, the, the next one if you want, which was the Messiah. So this... Uh, view that the Messiah is not a conquering military victor, but rather is a crucified individual who receives this most shocking, shameful form of death. Was that anticipated? And you just see that as a natural development that doesn't require any special explanation? Well, I, I I don't think that it requires a special explanation. Um, uh, but again, uh, going back to the atonement thing, I don't see how talking about the atonement and how it came about naturally is really tangential to your argument when that's a central that's one of the pieces of evidence for it. But I mean, we can move on to to that particular aspect of your argument if you want to. Um, as far as the Messiah goes, I think that there was a lot of different ideas about how the Messiah was going to atone for sins and how the Messiah was going to liberate uh, Israel and all this other stuff. I think one of the possible uh, interpretations of it is a militaristic uh, type of, of uh, messianic figure. Um, a, a good example of that from actual history is uh, in Josephus's work when he talks about the Egyptian. Um, the Egyptian was a failed Messiah that tried to be this militaristic leader. And I think that uh, elsewhere in the Jewish landscape, because uh, I know that you kind of talked about the beliefs of Jews in, in the early first century and, and, and late first century BCE as being kind of very, very strictly contained to certain ideas, one being a militaristic messianic figure. But in reality, there was a vast landscape of different Jewish ideas going around at the time. So it's, uh, it's perfectly within, um, uh, you know, uh, um, it's perfectly plausible that it also existed at the time that this messianic figure wouldn't be this militaristic one, but would more or less conquer Satan, which is or Satan or death or, or, or something, something to that effect, have more of a spiritual sort of victory, over this world rather than a militaristic conquering of Jerusalem, stuff like that. Um, I, I think it could have naturally come about. So, well, there are, there are, so first of all, and, and the, the antecedents to this period is first of all, the overwhelming image of the Messiah as a militaristic victor, but there's also a priestly theme in terms of, of how some have interpreted the Messiah, but there was no anticipation for the idea of a Messiah as being somebody who dies a horrific, ignominious death, such as a death on a cross. So when that happened, and every time any Messiah figure was crucified, the Jews would interpret it in accord with Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is he who dies on a tree. 
And at that moment, they would scatter. They'd be done because this person was shown to, in fact, have God's curse because no Messiah is going to die in humiliation on a cross. And that is so, truly a revolution that came about well, with early Christianity. Well, no. So um, it's actually, it's predicted in Isaiah. It's already the foundation has been laid in Judaism that this messianic figure would be shamed and he would carry the burden of, of Israel and, and the world. It, basically, he would carry all of our sins. And you, he, so, but yeah, now you're the problem what you're doing there, if you're referring to Isaiah 30, 53, is you're referring to a text in terms of the way that Christians began to interpret it after Jesus. No, no, it's not. Well, it, well, no, not, 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 not after Jesus, because Paul, uh, you know, he cites the scriptures as where he gets his information from about it. So, I mean, it's not that Christians reinterpreted this. Like, I really don't think that you'd be able to make a solid case, like with evidence, that it was the Christians reinterpreting the uh, prophecy in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. I, I don't think that you'd actually be able to show an evidence uh, where the Christians after Jesus died started to reinterpret it. I, I, I feel like that would be very speculative and not and, and sort of ad hoc to suggest that. Uh, it, instead, by the time that we actually get information about this Jesus Christ figure, which would be with Paul, he is strictly pulling his information from what's already written in the scripture. So we can't really tell whether or not he, whether or not this was post reinterpretation of the scripture or if it was, um, uh, or, or if this sort of thought happened prior to what was supposed to happen. Uh, I would actually argue that if you use the Gospels, you really couldn't use this particular argument that they were reinterpreting it after um, after Jesus died. Uh, because if you go with the Gospels, Jesus himself in all the Gospels make several references to the Scriptures. So, I mean, they were all, like, even in the Gospels, they're referencing the Scriptures, particularly Isaiah 53, um, with, you know, as far as being predictive of what Jesus was supposed to go through, suffer, uh, the basic theology of Jesus. So yeah, uh, that's, not, that, that's not helping your case. I mean, what that is pointing out is that Jesus himself laid this hermeneutical foundation which would only come into focus for them after his death. And so, in fact, we have in Luke 24, the story of the road to Emmaus. You have these two guys walking along, and then Jesus appears with them, walks along with them, and then explains the scriptures to them. And they now get it in a way that they just didn't get it before. So, yeah, we, we do have a revolution hermeneutically in terms of how we interpret the nature of Messiahship, which comes with Jesus. It, it is something which has to be explained for the historian. Uh, now, what about the resurrection in history? And that's in the, that's the next one I, I wanted to point out, right? That they come to think the first fruits of the resurrection has now come in the middle of time. And I said, that is analogous in terms of a conceptual revolution to think you can get the first basket of peaches for your forthcoming crop in January. I mean, that's a total new way of thinking. What brought about that change? Uh, of the resurrection? Yeah, thinking that suddenly the resurrection has begun in the midst of history rather than at the end of history. Daniel 12.2, right? A good, any good Jew would know Daniel 12.2 that talks about a general resurrection at the end of history. But now it's coming in the middle of history with Jesus. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Isaiah also talks about resurrection for the suffering servant. Which so, are you referring to? Um, it's Isaiah 53. Uh, I don't have it memorized, but I can I can definitely look it up. And, um, and, and, you're, and are you saying that the passage, if you want to look it up, the passage to which you're referring uh, established a teaching that in the middle of history there would be a resurrection or at the end of history there would be a resurrection? Uh, it talks about the suffering servant being resurrected. Yeah, what we're talking about here, I mean, you can pull up the passage, let me know, but what we're talking about here is a conceptual revolution that the early Christians in the 30s suddenly begin to believe that there is now resurrection, which was supposed to be an event at the end of history, has now begun in the middle of history. It's not simply a revivification. It's not simply a body returning to life. It's a body that has now become immortal and has attained its resurrection status. It's been glorified. Okay, okay. So uh, do you have a preferred version of the Bible that you like to read from? No, no. Just, no. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, well, I just, I have a lot of trouble reading King James, and it automatically pulled up King James. Um, so, okay, this is the ESV version. Uh -huh. Uh, it, it, this is uh, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, so it says in 10, yet it, it, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put, uh, put him to grief. Uh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his uh, soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make uh, many to his uh, accounted uh, accounted righteous uh, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul at death and was numbered by his transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I, I feel like this provides a firm foundation in Judaism for the Jews to uh, either reinterpret this uh, as as the theology of what uh, Jesus was supposed to do, you know, with his sacrifice on the cross. Um, it, it it obviously says right here in ten, uh, one portion of ten, it says he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So. I mean, it, it's not specifically saying like any any certain kind of resurrection, but it is definitely talking about resurrecting this servant, prolonging his days and providing this sort of atonement. Yeah, well, there's I'm, I don't find in that passage any reference to resurrection. Well, that's, uh, he shall prolong his days. That's talking about resurrection right there. I mean, this is this is pretty common in in apologist um, uh, uh, arguments that that this particular section right here is indicative of a resurrection. Yeah, I'm, I don't I don't hear uh, a resurrection there, and uh, certainly okay. that that passage doesn't establish the claim that there was already established a Jewish view that in the middle of history, there would be a resurrection of at least one person and then a later resurrection of everyone else. That is a novel development with the Christians in the thirties. Well, it, well, no, no, it's not because in the, in the Jewish scriptures in the, uh, I guess the Hebrew Bible, um, it, uh, it, it commonly talks all the way through it. Um, 
you know, about how this suffering servant is going to provide salvation to the people of Israel. Uh, so, I mean, it, it seems to me like in Judaism, there's already this firm foundation just ready. And I, I'm not speaking in definite terms. I'm saying that it is quite likely that this just developed naturally because the foundation was already there. So it seems to me like with the foundation already there, all it takes is uh, some uh, sect of Jews uh, in uh, the late uh, first century BCE or the early uh, first century CE to, you know, be waiting for the Messiah and, you know, not really seeing the Messiah come. And so they uh, read from these, you know, passages. They do. I do agree that they reinterpret this. Right. But but I, I don't see enough evidence to say that they only had to reinterpret it uh, after Jesus died. I, I feel like it's it's more parsimonious that they would have reinterpreted this uh, much sooner than Jesus's death. Yeah. Uh, again, you referenced the uh, suffering servant song in Isaiah 53. It was understood standardly to apply to Israel, not to the Messiah. That was an innovation. So even, for example, a contemporary Jewish writer like Elie Wiesel, uh, in his memoirs where he's talking about surviving the concentration camps of World War II, and he's trying to understand why would God allow this? And he tells a parable where a king sends his uh, queen into live in exile for a period of time, and then he draws her back again into the kingdom. And she says, why did you send me into exile? And he says, only know this, that I could not live without you. And so I followed you into exile. And then Wiesel says, and so God follows his people. Uh, now that reflects this understanding of Isaiah 53, that it is Israel that is the suffering servant that has been sent into exile. And it is Israel that God will draw back again. That changes with the Christians, and they begin to understand that it is not Israel, collectively the people, but actually this individual, Jesus, who is fulfilling the suffering servant and who died, therefore, for our sins. Uh, what about the, the well, Messiah well, divine? Did you want to talk about that one? Or, well, or if well, you want to so, finish the third one? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the, the, first, the first Christians were actually Jewish Christians. So, I mean, they, they, they would have already had this established. I mean, even with Paul— he says that he has uh, he had advanced his Judaism beyond his peers, right? So, I mean, he had this advanced understanding about the Jewish scriptures. He wasn't reinterpreting anything from the Jewish scriptures. He was just reading the Jewish scriptures as it made sense to him uh, pertaining to the Messiah. And we simply can't pin down when exactly that happened, but we also don't have any evidence to pinpoint when Jesus was, uh, when Jesus died, uh, even if he, if he even died. Um, but th that's another debate. Um, so it, it just kind of seems to me that my, my entire point for this is that in Jewish scripture, the uh, suffering servant, as well as uh, all of the prophets and uh, a lot of other things in Jewish scripture, were was reinterpreted from its original meaning at one time. That's painfully obvious. And then turned into this idea about what the Messiah is supposed to do. And my, my whole point is, is that the fact that there's already a foundation in Judaism for that to happen, then it is more likely that it naturally developed uh, than compared to a supernatural explanation, because natural explanations always supersede supernatural ones. 
what? Okay, uh, we got to push the pause button here. Uh, so you said natural explanations always supersede supernatural ones. Can you explain? Because I, I think we're back to the presuppositional biases. Like, can you explain a little bit more about what you think about that? Because no, it's, it's, it's I, I may have an impossible standard of proof to meet if you're always going to defer to a natural organic evolutionary development rather than some extraordinary event. Well, right. So uh, every single process, every single thing that's happened in reality has always been later explained by some natural process. And so the most logical conclusion to come to is that anything that does happen is going to have some kind of natural explanation to it. Now, I agree that it's quite possible you could prove this suspension of the natural order of reality or some miraculous event, but that's a pretty tall order to show how the natural order of reality is suspended for something. So the most logical conclusion to come to is that um, a natural explanation for something like uh, to, to simplify it, um, uh, thunder, lightning, the, the water cycle. Um, you know, it's, it's much, it's much more reasonable to consider the natural processes that go into the water cycle, uh, the natural reasons for the water cycle than just to think that God did it right. Anything that can be explained by God did it doesn't really explain anything. Um, natural, uh, uh, explanations actually explain why things happen and how things happen. And so it, it, it the natural explanations being that they're actually explanations are always going to trump like supernatural explanations because we have yet to prove that the supernatural one exists and two, any supernatural event it has ever happened in history. So it's not so much a bias on my end. It's just that we don't have evidence to suggest that supernatural events have happened. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, you said a lot. So one thing, for example, I think you're begging the question. You said, we don't have any evidence that there have been supernatural events. Well, that's precisely what we're talking about right now. And so we have to be open in principle, as I've been saying, to supernatural events or to miracles, such as I define them, a sign of God's action in the world. We need to be open to the possibility that Jesus's body did in fact reconstitute after being dead for a period of time. And that the best explanation for that could be that God raised him from the dead. Now, it seems to me that really at the end of the day, you're not open to considering that as an explanation. Uh, for example, you said uh, saying God did it isn't actually an explanation at all because it doesn't tell you how it came about. But of course, that's not really a viable objection. The historian isn't committed in principle to being able to explain everything through natural successive steps unless you are committed to a rigorous methodological naturalism in your historical method, which is why I was asking you about that at the beginning. And it seems to me like initially you said, no, you are in principle open, but it would take a lot of evidence. But now you've come back and said, actually, I, you are committed to a sort of methodological naturalism. Well, we're not going to probably settle that. So if you want to keep going, we could keep going or, or we could just... Well, well, no, no, no. I mean, I'm still open to it. I, I literally just said that you just have to be able to prove that supernatural events occur. We haven't actually established that yet. What does proof, so just, like? what, does proof huh? look like? what does proof look like? I mean, I, I I don't know what proof of the supernatural would look like because it's a suspension of the natural order of reality. If if somehow, and I mean, I'm I'm not the expert to tell you how that would be possible. 
but if you could somehow prove a, a suspension of the natural order of reality, um, then I, I, I would consider the supernatural to be a uh, an explanation that's on the table. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's hard actually. All, all we need to do is say, say at T1, Jesus was alive. At T2, he was dead. At T3, he was alive again. And then look at the options to explain how it could be that he's alive again at T3. Well, yeah, but I don't. We don't. We don't actually have any evidence to suggest that Jesus was alive again. Well, actually, I, I provided evidence, right? And not only mm -hmm. did I begin by the outer perimeter of my impact crater, right, which was this revolution. What best explains the revolution in thinking on these five points? I then noted that we are back into the 30s when we have claims both that Peter believed he had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And that even disbelievers, people such as Paul and James, came to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that they've so, seen him. Yeah. Well, so so, can you tell me which one of your outer ring five points cannot be explained by just the mere belief that it happened, and not that it actually happened? Like, if if people just believe that it happened, which doesn't necessarily mean that it did happen. But I'm just wondering if any of those five points could not have developed uh, or come about if if it wasn't just mere belief, mere belief. So again, like so, what we're doing, but the the movement was like this. So begin at the outer perimeter. We've got a conceptual revolution of five points that were unprecedented in in history to that time. We then move to the inner. Like what explains that outer transformation? Well, the inner circle is that. Uh, the disciples came to believe Jesus was raised from the dead after he had died, been crucified and died. Um, they came to believe that he was raised from the dead. And also, by implication, the tomb was empty. There was no body to be found. And so now you said, okay, now we're at ground zero. What explains best the fact that they came to believe that this, this individual that they've been following for three years, uh, who had been crucified, that he was in fact raised from the dead? What brought it about in their thinking that that and the best explanation I would propose is that God raised Jesus from the dead. So what you want to do is, from a naturalist perspective to offer an alternative hypothesis is to offer an overarching alter alternative hypothesis for all the data points that I presented and show why yours is indeed more parsimonious. Because I will agree that if you can explain everything with the same explanatory scope and power as the explanation I propose that, yeah, Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, then let's go with the natural one. But rather than just say, but it's possible that this, and it's possible that you could explain this one with this, and this with this, give me one unified hypothesis to explain all the data points. Well, I, I mean, you know, people write entire books over these kinds of subjects, right? I mean, it's it's a little unreasonable for you to expect me to, you know, uh, basically regurgitate like a 300-page uh, book right now, um, my so so my to 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 sum up my position on this is that the ideas about Jesus, which I, I have to say you didn't really answer my question a second ago, but we can move on from that. Um, which one is that? The which one of the five things in the outer ring could not have developed uh, just by the mere belief existing, like like like. Forget about it actually exists uh, happening for a minute. <clears throat> Just the mere belief that some things happened, right? Just the mere belief, which one of those five things could not have happened 
if just the mere belief existed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, let's take the fifth one, which we haven't really talked about. What, what brought these early Jews, these early Christians, Jewish people, to shift worship from Sabbath to a Sunday? Well, you could tell a just-so story. Uh, you could come up with some ad hoc natural explanation as to how that happened. You could speculate all day long. You could speculate for any one of these points. The question is, why is that not just ad hoc speculation? What, what independent reason do you have apart from your a priori aversion to my explanation in order to accept those various explanations? So, like, for example, hold on, hold on. Uh, so you want me to give you a natural explanation for that? Okay, here we go. With evidence, right? Like, like what? Is so, so Jesus, yeah. so, so Jesus is seen as the sacrificial lamb. He was crucified uh, at uh, uh, Passover, right? Uh, he is the sacrificial lamb. In John, they even make a explicit allusion to Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. Uh, so the the entire situation is kind of recreating the Yom Kippur ritual in Judaism, uh, especially with Barabbas. Uh, the choice between Barabbas and um, and Jesus um, it, it directly correlates to the Yom Kippur uh, ritual. Uh, one carrying the sins of Israel is let go. The other one is sacrificed to atone for their sins, right? Uh, and so the – crap. What topic were we just talking about? <laughs> so the, the shift to worship from Sabbath to uh, first oh, day. To, to right, right, Sabbath, Sabbath. So um, with, with – that happening on a Friday, and the common idea of uh, dying and rising God deities, these savior deities, uh, uh, e even in um, even in the Old Testament, you have three days being very important. Him dying on that day and then rising on the third day, uh, being uh, Sunday, is is how they were interpreting it. I think that there's a pretty logical uh, uh, case to be made that because of the fact that Jesus was seen as the sacrificial lamb, that he was atoning for sins, just like uh, the sacrificial lamb in Judaism was, um, him being or him being sacrificed on that particular day, and then having to spend the three days, you know, uh, dead to rise on the third day, which even Paul in his Pauline creed admits comes from the, the scriptures, um, it suggests that he was to rise on that third day, which I guess they just started worshiping on Sunday. Um, so, I mean, if you really need a natural explanation, I think that there's a way that you can get a natural explanation for it, but I really don't understand what day they worship on necessarily like ties to the resurrection. Now, uh, I mean, I, I like I said, I, for the sake of well, I said this in the chat prior to this uh, debate. Uh, I can I can go with the idea that Jesus existed and that he was crucified and that he died at a certain point. Like I'm 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 fine admitting all of that, but I just don't think that the resurrection uh, necessarily happened. So uh, yeah, that would be my natural explanation for your point number five. So your natural explanation, you began by citing the Gospel of John as a historical source. So I'm really heartened to hear that well, you're seeding that kind of credibility of the Gospel of John because well, no, no, you no, wouldn't no. kind of ad hoc just, just pick from sources when you wanted to, right? Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying that John is a historical source. 
I was just giving you an example of how Jesus was seen as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, John being written in the second century obviously is not John a good not historical source. Century. But not, John was not written in the second century. But what we're talking about is it the is. 30s, right? So the the, the state statement that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I mean, I just have to pause, push the pause button. Right, we have in the 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 um, P fifty two right is, is a fragment of the Gospel of John, which is dated to the first part of the second century. So unless you're claiming that that is possibly from the autographon from the original writing, I think it's you're really pushing it to suggest that John was written in the second century. But well, no, so so the, point, the like we're we're dealing to, for you to cite the Gospel of John, which you believe was written seventy to eighty years after the event I'm talking about, is not very helpful. What we have to talk about is these beliefs that came out in the 30s. Um, and so in particular, the shift in worship from Saturday to Sunday. So that, I mean, people today don't appreciate how extraordinary that is, but the Jews believed that Sabbath was God's gift for them. They believed that this was sanctified time, as Abraham Heschel beautifully stated in his book, The Sabbath. This structured their entire life and existence and these Jews in the 30s suddenly begin to worship on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. And you have to ask what brought about that change. And, 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 I and so hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so you think that it's more likely a supernatural resurrection of Jesus was needed rather than a group that was obviously separating and deviating from the mainstream Jews, the Jews that were like, in power, the, the main Jewish religion, those that were separating from it, you think that it's weird uh, and, and needs a supernatural explanation for them to just change days? So, yeah. So here again, the, here's the issue, is that rather than kind of pick at each individual point and kind of come up with an ad hoc explanation to explain away this one and then this one and then this one, what we want to do is take the totality of our data set, right? The whole perimeter and the whole inner perimeter of this impact crater of history that comes in the 30s and find a single explanation for all of them and an explanation that has independent evidence so that it's not simply an ad hoc attempt to avoid the supernatural explanation that I proposed. Well, right. Nothing that I have said has been ad hoc, though. Well, I think that like I asked you, you know, what is the reason to think that they shifted from Saturday, from Sabbath to Sunday, the first day of the week in their worship? And you told a story and you, you well, it could be this. And then you cited the Gospel of John as evidence. You cited dying and rising gods. There's no evidence that that was impacting the thought forms of the Israelites in Palestine in the first century, let alone that they would move from a metaphor of an annual death and rebirth in the cycle of seasons to somehow applying that to a historic individual who is crucified right in front of them. I think well, you're making no, 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 so you're, you're totally misrepresenting the whole dying and rising genre. And it's painfully obvious that other religions in the area were affecting the, uh, the, the Jewish uh, view of their own religion. Uh, I mean, the, the, this is syncretism to a T. I mean, the, the the Jewish religion was syncretized with these other religions that were going on at the time, and uh, that ended up producing what we find to be uh, Christianity now. Um, uh, so, I mean, this the, I mean, this is this is all over all over the scholarship on this particular topic of of how the Jews syncretized their religion with 
other religious ideas of the time. I mean, that's how new religions come about syncretizing, you know, their, their stuff with other, with other ideas. Um, like for instance, here's a, here's a good one. Um, uh, the, the, um, Christian religion uh, syncretize, you know, the idea of a virgin birth with their with their religion, because uh, in, in order to work in or in order to make the religion more palpable to the pagans, that they were starting to convert into the religion. And the way that they did that was by having instead of the adoptionist view of Mark. Uh, by Matthew, they have a miraculous birth where God impregnates a woman and then has a demigod son that is Jesus, right? Um, and so that that was added in to make the religion a bit more palpable because at the time you had these pagans who were already used to years and years of these religious ideas of gods coming down and having sex with uh, human women and producing these uh, demigod figures. Um, and, and, and then the, to, to say that like the dying and rising God uh, motif uh, was only concerning, like, I, I guess, figures that the people who held the belief didn't think actually existed or, or were metaphorical in some way. Um, you know, uh, the, the Isis and Osiris cult, uh, the, the public uh, stories about Isis and Osiris had them existing on earth and had, you know, people believed that they existed in history and that these things existed in, uh, and happened in history. So I, I really don't think that, that your entire line about how these dying and rising gods were purely metaphorical, which if I'm wrong about that in what you said, please correct me. But it just, it seems like um, you, it just seems like you, maybe you're a little misinformed on, on what the actual beliefs of these dying and rising cults were. Yeah. So uh, again, you went through a lot there. So for example, you talked about the virgin birth of, of uh, narrative and Matthew and so on, which is beyond the purview of what we're discussing here. Um, you talked about syncretism. Yeah, there's syncretism in the ancient world. What, what you have to show is that there were specifically ideas of dying and rising gods, number one, that those were operative, that they were proliferating within the specific region around Jerusalem that we're talking about in the 30s. And number two, that Faithful Jews like Paul, Pharisees, committed Jews would have been impacted by these and would have made a leap to then apply these metaphors of the annual cycles of death and rebirth and apply them to a specific individual in history. But I see that we only have like five or six minutes left before we go to Q&A. So uh, uh, how about we talk a, a little bit, because I think it's important about the, what you believe happened that changed Paul and what you believe happened that changed James, both of whom were originally... Uh, Paul, of course, was the active persecutor of the early Christian movement, and James, brother of Jesus, uh, appears to have been, by the suggestion of John 7 and, and Mark 3, the brothers of Jesus did not have any active participation and were probably skeptical of his ministry during his life, and yet James becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and in fact is martyred there, according to Josephus, for his faith, and also what changed Peter's mind. So, so how do you explain that, uh, that the fact that they thought they had seen appearances? Well, so, I mean, I, I, I don't consider conversion stories to be very good evidence that something actually exists, uh, happened, like the resurrection of Jesus. Um, for Paul, 
Uh, I mean, he, yeah, he was persecuting Jews, and then he had to change of heart, and he converted to Christianity. Uh, I don't see how that necessarily entails that he uh, uh, that that he had a very real encounter with a risen Christ. Um, I think that that he had a either hallucination, he had a vision, however you want to describe it, he had an experience, and uh, you know he he uh, claims to have converted uh, to Christianity. But I, I really don't think that a a supernatural appearance of Jesus is the best explanation for that, uh, considering that you know um, the. Uh, uh, at the at the time, even even now, uh, in religions, uh, they are pretty accepting of those that are uh, not uh, that they're schizotypal. Uh, they would have been readily accepted by religious groups. And so uh, you were talking about James. I obviously disagree that he was the brother of Jesus. Uh, for that particular James, unless you're also going to consider him, uh, Jesus to be the son of Zebedee, I really don't think that you can establish that he was that uh, you know that particular brother. Uh, in John seven, uh, that particular reference, he's actually talking about the more uh, fictive kinship rather than uh, blood relatives. So I, I I don't see any of that as being indicative of uh, Jesus's family uh, denying him and then taking him up only after he resurrected. But uh, but but all of that aside, just the belief that it happened does not indicate that it actually happened. And I guess that would be my ultimate answer to your question. No. I nor, nor, of course, did I claim the belief that it happened entails that it happened. What I said is we have to look at plausible alternative explanations to explain this complete change of mind, this revolution in Paul's thinking from becoming the persecutor, someone who in Philippians 3, he says uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. He hated Christians. He wanted to kill them all. Something changed. Now, you kind of threw out a few different things. You said, well, maybe he had, maybe it was a vision. Um, maybe he had a hallucination. Maybe, and then I think you kind of said, uh, so-called, or you kind of called in a question, maybe he actually legitimately had a conversion. Uh, and you also um, made, a, I think, a comment about uh, some kind of mental illness. So what, what I think you need to do is actually drill down and say, this is what I think happened. And these are the known psychological mechanisms that can occur when a person is an active persecutor of a group and then suddenly becomes persuaded that they have, in fact, seen the person they're persecuting, the person they hate, appear to them. You have to give an explanation for that. Well, give a yeah, similar so explanation I, for James. Give a similar explanation for Peter. It, you know, it becomes the more that you explain it, the more that you have a more and more complex explanation, which I think ultimately traces down to your resistance to consider a supernatural explanation. Well, no, it's just that I don't think that these visions that were given to Paul and uh, Peter and uh, the other apostles, I don't think that those constitute as like these supernatural uh, experiences of Jesus. Uh, because, I mean, we haven't proven that the supernatural one exists. And two, a schizotypal like type of personality is way more plausible than a supernatural visit by 
Jesus. Uh, the, the schizotypal, uh, there have been studies done that show how these schizotypal individuals who, uh, who are like high functioning, um, uh, not, not exactly uh, schizophrenic, but they, they often have uh, auditory and, and uh, visual hallucinations, and things like that. I think that it's quite possible and plausible that he was, you know, you know, he, he was he was struck by his grief. Like he had, he had a lot of grief for persecuting the Jews. He I get that he hated them or or whatnot. Not Jews. Sorry. Wait, wait, you're saying you're now you're projecting on a Paul that he was actually conflicted because he provides zero evidence of being conflicted about it. He was actually says everything he says prior to his conversion was he was hundred percent committed to this, and it was his road to Damascus experience that changed everything. Now, if you're just going right. to ignore what he says, that's a whole nother question. But if you want to take him at face value, if he's not conflicted about this, but well, if you're yeah. saying that all the early Christians were schizotypal, no. I mean, you can say that, but uh, that's not what I said. Yeah, okay, you got to drill down though. Like again, it's the I said the apostles. Yeah, yeah. So all all the the individuals, Peter. Yeah. So Peter, James, Paul, whoever else claimed to have had an appearance of Jesus, that they're all undergoing some sort of delusion because they have this schizotypal condition. And I'm good. Randall, look, I yeah, don't okay. know why Paul changed his mind about Christians and became a Christian. Uh, you know, he, he cites the Damascus, uh, Damascus road experience as the reason why. Uh, and I don't know exactly what that experience was. He claims that he had a, uh, had a vision from Jesus and he all throughout his letters, he claims that he had a vision about Jesus. Now using that particular idea that he had a vision from Jesus where Jesus imparted information on him, it seems much more likely that he was schizotypal and had a hallucination rather than a, an actual, like a, a, an actual experience of a, a, a physically risen uh, Jewish man. Okay, he understood it as a vision. He understood it as a physical appearance, which in he, uh, his addendum to 1 Corinthians 15, he understands that to be that which places him as an apostle, least of all among the apostles. That's quite different from Acts 7, where Stephen has a vision of Jesus. Uh, I didn't understand it to be a vision, but I think Zach wanted to okay. jump in. Yeah, I was going to jump in. I would say if we could uh, go to closings. I know obviously you guys aren't finished with the point you're just trying to make, but hopefully you could just wrap your points up in closings. Uh, we'll start with Randall first. So whenever you're ready, just take a few minutes and wrap up, and we'll go to John. And then if you guys have questions in the live chat, uh, throw them in there, and we'll get to some at the end as we head out of the way. All right, thanks um, a lot. But um, Randall, it's all first you. John, thanks. It's, this has been a blast. I can't believe how an hour goes by when you're talking about these kinds of issues. Um, so – I, I laid out, first of all, I said, okay, we have to think about Jesus as having, uh, there was something that happened in the 30s, and it led to this Christian movement that, you know, by the early 300s had become a few million people and had converted Constantine, and we have to explain what that was. Uh, and so the first thing we find is we go back to the 30s, and we have all these different views that were unprecedented to that time arise. One of them is to equate atonement with the sacrifice of a particular individual, uh, to reinvent the understanding of the Messiah as someone who was crucified, to understand resurrection as occurring, first of all, in the middle of history with that individual, and then later with the rest of us, uh, to understand that individual as being in some sense divine so that he could be included in the Shema confession along with the Father, and to then shift your worship as a community from Sabbath, which God had ordained from the beginning, the foundation of the world, to Sunday. 
So that was a revolution. Uh, so then we come to the next step in and what we find in 1 Corinthians 15, which can be dated to the mid thirties within a few months, if not years of the death of Jesus, is we find Paul saying that, well, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, he was buried, he was uh, raised, and then he was seen by Peter, he says. And so we know something changed Peter's mind that he's believed he had seen Jesus raised. Uh, and then Paul goes on to mention James among others, and he also mentions himself. And of course, James and Paul were critics of the of the movement. By implication as well, if we look at the Greek words there, agero and anastasis in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a bodily resurrection. So the next thing to know is there was no body produced by the Romans. So by implication and the theology of the time, the tomb was empty. And so that's the next thing we have to explain. So empty tomb, belief in post-resurrection appearances, and a five-point revolution in theological thinking. And I would explain, I would propose that the best summative explanation for all those facts is that God did in fact raise Jesus from the dead. And I think the main thing that John has provided by way of rebuttal is first of all, when you get down to it, an a priori skepticism that uh, supernatural explanations or miraculous explanations can ever be legitimate informative explanations. And so he's offered various ad hoc proposals to try to say how you could explain this, this, or this by way of natural explanation, but he's offered no unifying single natural explanation that has this sufficient explanatory power and scope to surpass my explanation. So I think we ought to conclude that God did in fact raise Jesus from the dead. Thanks, Randall. Uh, we'll go to John whenever you're ready. You can give your kind of closing thoughts. Okay. Um, so it's my position that there was a foundation for this Messiah figure that eventually became known as Jesus uh, to arise in the Jewish community and eventually, uh, you know, uh, convert uh, or convince rather uh, enough people and uh, end up succeeding. And, and Paul was one of them, which uh, is the, the line of Christianity that uh, uh, survives to this day. Um, there were many other different versions of Christianity that existed uh, alongside Paul and even uh, on through his writings. He mentions it several times. So we know that there were other people spouting different gospels of Jesus that were going around and Paul had to, uh, you know, tell people to ignore those people uh, because it, he had a vision of Jesus and that's how he has knowledge of Jesus. Uh, Paul goes through great uh, links to separate himself from any kind of historical information uh, and, and only relies on scriptures and these visions that he has. So, it seems to me like it's more parsimonious for this foundation in Judaism that's already been laid for several decades, um, possibly hundreds of years. Um, this foundation that's already been laid to eventually come about and uh, have this Messiah figure resurrect from the dead. Uh, I feel like that's a more parsimonious explanation for it. And uh, tonight I really wasn't convinced that a supernatural explanation is a better explanation than um, the, the Jews just reinvented their own religion into Christianity which is uh, how um, uh, syncre uh, syncretization happens uh, for, for new religions. Um, they take their own religion and then they take ideas from outside their religion and they sort of mash them together and they create this new religion, which ended up becoming Christianity. Um, 
Randall said that I I proposed ad hoc on, like ad hoc explanations kind of in a in a very definite only sense, um, and I I didn't provide that. I, I gave you uh, you know evidence from scripture. I, I gave you evidence uh, in, in other ways as well um, that supports my particular conclusion. Um, so I really don't think that anything that we've discussed here tonight. Uh, couldn't have come about from just the mere belief that something happened. And if just the mere belief that something happened does not indicate that it actually did happen, then I think that uh, you can't firmly establish that Jesus had to resurrect from the dead in the supernatural sense of God resurrecting him from the dead. Um you know, uh, the, there's this popular idea that Sinbad starred in a movie called Shazam when really it was Shaquille O'Neal in Kazam. But plenty of people out there believe that Sinbad was in a movie called Shazam. But um, that doesn't make it actual reality. And so I guess that'll be it. Thanks, John. Uh, so we'll go to some Q&A. If you have questions, you continue to put them in the live chat. Um, most of these questions are probably, I'm just going to have to read them off my phone here because the there's a lot of live chatter, so it kind of fell off the screen. Um, but the first question is for John. It's from Sahi Luke. Uh, it says, John, how do you account for the heavy ancient multi-attestation from Christian and non-Christian sources in agreement all testifying that first, number one, Jesus died, and number two, he was later seen alive? Well, I would say that all of those sources ultimately come from Paul, and Paul recited his Pauline Creed, which I do agree comes from the early 30s. But still, what that comes back to is just the mere belief that it happened and not that it actually happened. I believe all of that could have come about from just the mere belief existing and popping up rather than it actually happening. Thank you. Uh, another question here for John uh, from Smoky Saint. Um, he asked, "How would how do you know you wouldn't you aren't someone who won't be convinced of a resurrection no matter what? Uh, what is your falsification criteria?" And that's probably relating to your belief that only naturalist, naturalistic events occur. Um, let's see. Can you read the question again? Sorry. Yeah. So the question is, how do you know that you aren't someone who? would not be convinced of a supernatural event no matter what. Um, what's your falsification criteria? Well, I mean, if, uh, if for one, you would have to prove that supernatural events actually occur. And until that point, can you, you can't really put a supernatural explanation on the table, in my opinion. I know that uh, Randall here, as well as uh, most, if not all, Christians would agree that supernatural explanations are already on the table. But um, I just haven't seen the evidence for supernatural stuff to happen in history. Everything that has been claimed to be supernatural in history has been later been explained by natural processes without the need of a supernatural intervention in the natural order of reality. So it seems the, like the least likely explanation for something and not the most likely. You need enough evidence to overcome that, that, that prior probability that it that super a supernatural explanation is not sufficient enough. I, I, can I just jump in on that? And because uh, I think that again, this is just very fundamental. Um, so I'll just just quickly, like there's uh, if uh, so, what what John said is when he was asked by this person, well, what is your criterion by which you would believe that there are 
supernatural events like like miraculous resurrections. And he says he'd have to be convinced of it in principle before he would consider the evidence for it. I mean, that's really what you just said. I mean, that's kind of like saying if someone said, well, what would convince you that 50 pound Flemish rabbits exist? And he says, and then you said, well, I have to be convinced in principle before I would consider the evidence for one. No, I mean, the provision of the evidence well, is no. precisely what you should be looking for. And so that what the person's well, no. asking you for is what kind of historical evidence would persuade you that a miracle had occurred? Well, no. So it, your your analogy there is a little flawed because we're not we're not in this particular discussion isn't talking about the existence of of someone uh, or something. It, it's talking about whether or not something happened. So, like, if you were to propose to me that fifty pound bullish rabbits is what you said, Flemish. I like Flemish, Flemish. rabbits. Okay, uh, let, let, uh, let, let's say that the claim was was that a 50-pound Flemish rabbit caused a car wreck uh, in the middle of North Alabama. I would have to say, well, you know, like, are there 50-pound Flemish rabbits out there? Like, do, do those even exist? Uh, if they don't exist, then there's no way it can possibly be an explanation for the car wreck. Uh, if you can show to me that, like, just using your example, if you could show to me that the 50-pound Flemish rabbits exist and that there was a Flemish rabbit farm near, uh, at least in some kind of vicinity of the um, of the car wreck, or maybe somebody was transporting them or something. Like that. There's any number of of ways that a Flemish rabbit, uh, I, I guess, could have could have escaped and to, and got you know, to, to answer that person's question. All you need to say is, for example, I'd need video evidence, or I'd need a credible first person witness that I could talk to, right? and that would be a concrete answer as to what evidence it would take for you to consider a miracle as a historical explanation. Uh, so that's what they're well, asking. Okay, so, so John, the last word here, and then we'll keep going to some other questions. Well, so as far as, as far as that goes, um, I think for ancient history, it would be incredibly difficult. Uh, I think that um, it, like nowadays you would need some kind of verifiable, uh, you know, supernatural event to have occurred in some way that we can actually acknowledge that the supernatural even exists uh, first. And, and then we can re-examine the evidence uh, for that. But um, as far as accepting miracles as evidence, I would say that um, it's at the very lowest, uh, it, the probability that it's the most likely explanation is actually at the very lowest end uh, of any evidence that we, we could have. But that's only because the prior evidence for supernatural events is so incredibly low you need extraordinary evidence to overcome it. And by extraordinary evidence, I just meant like, uh, uh, you know, you, you would need undeniable evidence for the supernatural actually existing in order to overcome, you know, the, the fact that we've never experienced a supernatural event. Okay, uh, let's go to the next question from Jane Pusiker. Uh, this is a question I think that's primarily directed towards Randall, but if you guys both want to answer it, feel free. Uh, to do so. It says, do you think there's a way to prove Jesus actually resurrected? If so, what do you think scientific testing and evidence look like to prove that? Uh, okay, so the questioner seems to assume that proof comes by way of science, but uh, proof is a word that, again, has multiple meanings. So uh, it can mean beyond a reasonable doubt, or we can prove by a preponderance of the evidence. Those are different standards of proof. 
I think that uh, we can prove certainly by preponderance of the evidence on historical grounds alone that Jesus rose from the dead. And depending on one's assessment of the evidence, they can draw a much stronger conclusion, perhaps relative to them, it could be beyond a reasonable doubt. One thing that we have to keep in mind is that different people assess evidence in different ways because they have different background starting assumptions. For example, if a person began by being a theist for independent reasons, they would be in a different position to consider the evidence for a miraculous resurrection than someone like John, who presumably is not a theist, would be, because he would have to be convinced that there is an agent uh, that resurrected that person supernaturally. And so it would be a different standard of evidence potentially. And that hopefully is just something we have to all keep in mind when we're debating these issues, that we can differ on our evaluation of the evidence and that we can do so reasonably in part because we have different background sets of be belief by which we evaluate that evidence. Uh, for me, I'm not exactly sure what kind of evidence would be needed in order to prove that Jesus actually resurrected. The current evidence that we have, uh, though, I feel is very insufficient for it. Um, so we would we would just need better quality evidence in order to actually suggest that uh, Jesus resurrected from the dead, uh, at least miraculously. Next question here is for John. It says historians use inference to the best explanation, spreading out possibilities for any particular historical event. Um, the resurrection has the best explanatory power uh, to explain the things regarding the resurrection. Do you dismiss this, John? Uh, I mean, I, I, I do dismiss the idea that the resurrection is the best explanation uh, for things. Um, I, I don't think that you need a supernatural event in order for a belief to come into existence. Uh, there have been many beliefs, uh, many false beliefs that have come into existence uh, for one reason or another, and it didn't take supernatural events. So uh, I really don't, I, I really don't see the connection uh, to a belief forming among a group of people to the necessity for a supernatural event to be there. Okay, uh, next question here is for Randall from Robert L. White. Um, he says, what about the Jews wondering if Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected? Isn't that evidence of a, of a belief of a single resurrection? Uh, Gary Habermas says it is at least. Um, yeah, so so one of the, the things that, because um, I've, well, but one of the ways that that could be interpreted is that there was a confusion about what, uh, about who John the Baptist was and what Jesus was. But, but in terms of uh, resurrection in the midst of history, I think what there could be was a revivification, what a person coming back to life, because of course Jesus himself brought people back to life. Uh, but that wouldn't entail that they were supernaturally raised, that they had the immortal body as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Another possibility is a belief that the person had been translated into heaven like Enoch or Elijah and then had returned. And so, for example, in the Mount of Transfiguration, they didn't believe that simply because they saw Elijah and Moses that they were seeing resurrections. Uh, they saw them returning to them in a ghostly figure or in the case of Elijah, perhaps because he had also been immediately translated to heaven. So there are several different ways to think about those passages. But in terms of the idea of a corporate resurrection happening at the end of history where you get your immortal body now, that was something that was understood to occur at the end of history. Uh, next question is from Jonathan Depew. I'll switch the cameras here so we don't miss out on, Rand in Rand on Randall's face. Um, it says, the Passover lamb in the Old Testament wasn't atoning. Uh, John's de depiction of Jesus as the lamb is doing something very different with the Old Testament context. Um, 
that connection doesn't support your case. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, John. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, th I think that in the Old Testament, it's fairly obvious that the Messiah figure that was eventually to come about was uh, going to atone for for sins. In um, in Judaism, they had, you know, when, when the temple was around, uh, they would have to sacrifice animals to atone for their sins. But then, uh, because uh, apparently um, uh, human blood sacrifices are more magical and more powerful, um, uh, that that's uh, that that was seen as the end all be all for this sort of uh, atoning for sins kind of thing with with a sacrifice. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I don't understand. Um, what what uh, Jonathan here means when he says that uh, the the lamb wasn't or, or or the sacrifices in in the Old Testament were not used to atone for sins uh, or transgressions against God um, when that's what they were explicitly set up to do. I'll just add quickly. So John one twenty nine is a reference to behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, one other interpretation is it could be an apocalyptic warrior lamb rather than an atoning lamb. So, so that's another possibility. Uh, next question here is from Dr. Albert Wilbur Jr. Uh, thanks for the question. They say uh, to John, why crucify Jesus if the Jews were just going to create their own narrative anyway? Why crucify Jesus if the Jews were just going to create their own narrative anyway? Uh, I guess I don't understand uh, the point of the question. I, I don't know if maybe somebody can explain a little bit better. Uh, the, the the reason why um, uh, Jesus was crucified, uh, it, uh, I'm not exactly sure why they chose crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion in the Old Testament, uh, as I know Randall has pointed out before, uh, was seen as this shameful death that even the Jews, uh, uh, you know, punished people with. Uh, in their own society, um, so I, I, I think that <clears throat> I think that crucifying Jesus is just uh, because it's a shameful death, and it's predicted in Isaiah that he was going to be uh, basically shamefully put to death uh, and uh, and and bear you know all of our sins and everything like that. I, I think that it's a it's pretty plausible that it came about. Like this idea that he was going to be crucified uh, came about naturally because it works with the already established Messiah narrative. I, I would just clarify: I I didn't say that Jews practiced crucifixion. Uh, that's a Roman innovation. What I said was that in Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, it refers to "Cursed is he who hangs on a tree," and they interpreted uh, the crucifixion of the Romans in light of that passage. So a little little different. well well. Right. So the the, uh, the there's a, an excellent paper, and I can I can uh, maybe send it to you, Randall, if you want to read through it uh, later. But uh, basically, there's uh, a very a very long history of things that we consider to be crucifixion, which the Roman version of crucifixion obviously uh, is very specific to the Romans. But crucifixion actually dates way way back uh, before the Romans, um, and and it's actually a type of suspension uh, torture and execution. And uh, they accomplished this in several ways. One of them was nailing or hanging people up on a tree. Uh, you have uh, the Jews or the Israelites doing that in the Old Testament, especially during their old conquering days. Um, and uh, you would you would have them hang people up uh, on trees for display and all this other stuff. Uh, but it, it could just be that there's this thing called a cru uh, crux simplex, 
where it's just a poll. And uh, even the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they believe that Jesus was not actually crucified to a cross, but actually to a pole. Um, and so uh, that, that was actually one form of crucifixion that did exist. So, uh, so yeah, the, just I was just going to correct that crucifixion did not start with the Romans. It existed long before that. And the, the Jews um, definitely use crucifixion in their punishment practices uh, as established in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll go through one more question here. We'll probably run out of time from Fonzo Jr. Another question for John. Um, it says, can you explain paranormal activity? Uh, because that would be outside the realm of science, which is the same uh, for the supernatural. Uh, well, I guess you would have to specify what do you mean by uh, paranormal activity, but if we were to go with like what you commonly see on like shows like the Ghost Hunters and stuff like that, uh, most of that stuff can be explained uh, naturally, even even on the even on out of all the shows, I really like um, the Ghost Hunters show the most because they actually try to find natural explanations for things first. But ultimately, I feel like it's um, the, kind of the same thing as pareidolia. Uh, our brains are pattern seeking. We try to find patterns in random noise. And so on occasion, uh, we find random noise out there that we recognize as something that we're familiar with. And I think that that is a very good uh, natural, uh, plausible explanation for supernatural things that happen. Awesome. Um, well, that's about all the questions we have, so we'll wrap things up here. Uh, John and Randall, really appreciate the time. Really fun discussion. Time flew by really quickly. I'd encourage everyone, if you don't, subscribe to The Godless Engineer and follow uh, Randall Rouser. There's links to them in the description so that you can follow them. Lots of cool stuff that they're both doing. Uh, thank you guys for your time. I really enjoy this debate. Thank you, guys. Uh, no, thank you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for everyone for tuning in. After you follow John and Randall, be sure to subscribe to Here in Apologetics. Uh, appreciate everyone's time. Have a good night, everyone.